This is Stage Right, and I am your host, John Thorne. They say if you die with a handful of friends, you die a rich man. Well, I have several buses full, and I'm very excited to share them all with you. Welcome to Stage Right. I am your host, John Thorne. This is episode 44. I appreciate you taking time to listen to the show today. So a couple weeks ago, I had a very special guest, Mark Gershmill, introduced my guest, who had worked with both of us quite a lot over the last 30 years. So I've got the same thing today. I've got a surprise guest who is going to introduce my guest today right after this quick word from our sponsor. Hey Rockstar provides digital marketing software and services to generate more leads, more exposure, and more revenue for your business or organization. Let Hey Rockstar amplify your awesomeness. Hello, this is Bryn from Rachel Rachel, and I get the honor of introducing you to today's podcast guest rob latrell well he goes by robbie these days but when i uh, knew him he was just rob and you know we he was our um well he was many things on our the tales of winter tour with whiteheart he works so hard he's such a smart guy so funny and um, he would work so hard on tour, but yet such a kind heart. And he would come on the motorhome and actually drive sometimes for us all night because we didn't have a driver. We didn't have a bus and a driver. We had a motorhome and we drove ourselves. And there were times when Rob would just drive all night so we could sleep. And it was it was so sweet and um, such a fun person, just a heart of gold. Um, like I said, just the smartest guy, and he's gone on to do so many interesting things because he's gifted beyond belief. So you're in for a real treat um, as you listen to the craziness of Rob, Robbie Luttrell. All right, Rob. So let's start by talking about the Janus House. What was the Janus House? The Janus House was a two-story ranch-style house in Antioch, Tennessee on Janus Drive. I can't tell you the address uh, because that's only a secret amongst the uh, Janus House inner sanctum, which is the people that live there. <laughs> we, we don't want people storming the house. <laughs> you know, yeah, the people, we don't know who lives there. We don't, we, but occasionally people do do drive-bys uh, within the inner sanctum, and it's still there. Yes. Um, I would say it was probably between the years of 1990, back of the 1900s, uh, 1992-ish through 1998, 99, about six, seven years, something like that. Was that about right, John? Yes, that is about right. That is correct. All right, so go down a list, Rob, of the names of people and what they did uh, that actually lived at the Janus House or hung out and rehearsed at the Janus House. Well, uh, I'm going to go from what I know of the beginning, which was right before I before I got there, and that would be uh, Chuck Connor, who played with Jag and Jeff Moore in the distance, and now builds churches in the uh, rainforest of Brazil. Then there was Paul Britton, guitar player of Jag, does a thing called Paul FM, and is a cruise guy, from what I understand. Then there's Danny Duncan of the Danny Duncan Band and producer. Yes. Um, then there was Anthony Salee, who played with Whiteheart and, jeez, uh, Michael W. Smith. He named it across the board there, and he's actually got his own project, which is actually doing really, really good. It's, a, it's great sounding. Then um, from there, we also had, uh, for a bit there, we had some Jody Davis, who played guitar with the Newsboys. Yep. Uh, we had you, John, 
Thorne, who played with Margaret Becker, also road managed Whiteheart and played bass with Whiteheart. We had uh, Robert Offer, who was songwriter. Yep. And um, a songwriter here in town. And works with we, Brad Paisley a lot, right? Yeah, he works with Brad, Brad a lot and uh, incredible guitar player. Yep. Um, we also had uh, Mike Wilson, who went on as a video guy and actually a great artist in his own right. Yeah, and at one point he had a, a record contract with Word Records. Yep. We had Ron DeMumbrum, uh, retail extraordinaire, merch guy, and the bagpipe player for Whiteheart on the Highlands, Highlands Tour, the original one. The original bagpipist. The original pipist. He was the first piper. <laughs> <laughs> he also was uh, merch, merch man to the stars. Ron did merch for z- yes. zillions of tours. Whiteheart, Petra, Twyla Paris. That was his favorite artist to work with. He's, he's told told countless people that. Yes. So Ron lived there. Yep. Who else was, who did we have there, John? Rob Luttrell lived there, who played drums for the Danny Duncan Band, as well as filled in for Whiteheart in Europe. And uh, <laughs> As we learned last, last episode. Yes. Stage manager, road manager, office manager. Everything. Okay, and then we had Bob Williams. And Bob Williams, and he uh, actually produces and records choirs, doesn't he? Yeah, he did a lot of stuff with Larry Goss before Larry passed away. But he is definitely plugged into the uh, church choir thing. Yep, and before that, his brother, Jim, was there, lived there before Bob did for a while. What did Jim do? Jim was a guitar player. He was also a veterinarian, I believe. Okay. Yeah, so, but then we had, you know, we would have some guests. It uh, was uh, Jim Cooper, played with Petra, was there for a few weeks. Bren from Rachel. Rachel lived in the motorhome out front. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh, <laughs> that is so funny, dude. In the Rachel Rachel motorhome, it was great. Yeah. You know. Bryn is Bryn is part of the Rachel Rachel story, but she's such an integral part of the uh, Whiteheart story. Yes, very much so. Uh, and then people would come over, girls come over for football games, SEC games, and that type of stuff. And you have other visitors. Would you know people would be there for the weekend? You know we're only at home for a few days. And they don't live in Nashville. Yeah, come crash on the floor. Chris Michael Essie do that quite a bit. Cook spaghetti for us, and right. we'd have to watch that football with him. So. <laughs> We got Lonnie and Chad Chapin, who, Chapin. along with uh, Brad Duncan, used to come over and practice. Lonnie and Chad ended up playing for Tate. Lonnie played for Petra later. Chad played for Ben Folds. Uh, Brad Duncan ended up playing for Rebecca St. James. Mm-hmm. It was con- it was constantly something going on there. It was very musical house. Uh, lots of uh, it was just. You know, either MTV or CMT was on. It was uh, <laughs> people were rehearsing, cooking, playing. It was just great, and nobody was cutting the grass. Right, and nobody was cutting the grass. <laughs> oh, it wasn't that bad. I mean, they, they would get high, but it got cut every couple of weeks. Somebody would cut it. Somebody would cut it, but I mean, we were busy. We were self-sufficient because even though we were on the road stuff, we would still have our you know part-time jobs that kept us in there. I mean. You know, I'd started before I was with Whiteheart. I was delivering pizzas. And so, hey, I, you know, free pizzas for the house. I used to send pies to the house. Every night. Yeah. You would call me and say, what kind of pizza do you want? Yeah. Just, uh, you know, <laughs> that type of thing. Chucky was working. Chucky and I think uh, Paul, a bunch of them were working at Steakout for a while. So that was nice. You get steak and potatoes. <laughs> and then Ron was working at the mall at Chess King. So, I mean, we were well fed and fashionable. <laughs> well fed and fashionable oh well but wait a minute but then we had the whole it was just a, a lot of us would fish oh my gosh we would we would you know you know we were catching release on a lot of them but hey you know people had to eat and that's better than you know <laughs> rob i have to say i was never part of the fishing club from the janice house but you never were i oh. never no 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 i was not part of the fishing club but one of the funniest stories ever 
Do you remember our unnamed roommate's Red Passat? Oh, yes. Dude, yes. do you remember the time he went fishing and forgot to take the fish out of the back of his brand new Passat and he left for the weekend? Actually, it was bait. Chris Michaelessi, who lived in Florida, and he was all about fishing with shrimp and everything. They'd forgotten the shrimp in the trunk. Well, there was a couple of fish in there, too, though. I vividly remember this. Uh, I think there may have been some catfish, but there was a... <laughs> and it was a, it was hot, and so all the fishing was, we were doing the night fishing. You've got Percy Prees, long, you know, throw a couple rods in, catch what you catch. Right. Well, they, you know, that was a thing, and, you know, you come home, you're tired, you just want to go to bed, and you forget about it the next morning, and you're just like, what's that smell when all of a sudden it's 100 degrees? No, this was not an overnight, dude. This roommate went on the road for the weekend and then came home. Oh, Lord of mercy. Dude, it was a brand new car. I mean, it wasn't very old at all, and it had a smell in it that he couldn't get rid of No, until he actually got rid of the car. He had to get rid of the car. Mm. Man, the lingering smell, the effect of that was we got in the car one day to go to lunch. And I said, dude, yeah, what is that smell? And he went, oh, it's not that bad now. That's actually, you know, I left a couple of fish in here. And he said, but that's been like a month ago. And I was like, oh, my gosh. You get used to it, you know. <laughs> this week on Deadliest Catch. Well, you know, it's it, it smells like home when you got a little wrenched fish smell there. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my gosh. Dude, I was playing for Margaret, and I vividly remember you guys driving, you and Anthony driving the White Hart van to all the bus calls. Man, the best thing about stage managing, no one tells you this, is that you get a company car. <laughs> <laughs> I wish we had a picture of this thing. Well, it was, uh, you know, it it, 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 it had gone, from what I understand, it was Gersh's van yes. originally. And that's what, and did they used to tour in it? I think they used to go to gigs in this van, yes. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah, and they'd had it. In it, was, it was an early 80s van that had windows, but it was almost like a panel van. Yeah, it was like a Ford Econoline or something. Yes. And... It was, you could tell it used to be nice, but it had gotten T-boned. The side door would no longer open because that was where it got T-boned. And so you had to load everything in from the back. But it was deep and it would fit every bit of their gear in there. So it was good for hauling to the bus and it was cartage. And, you know, you know that was kind of the thing. If things had to go to the bus, I had to take it in the van. It saved renting a U-Haul. Yes, it saved for that, but it was the company car. So Yes, <laughs> And you were the only one that drove it. Yeah, because you got to, you had to learn how to drive it. I think most of the tires were probably bald, and you know the alignment <laughs> was very questionable. And you know you really had you had to drive, you know, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> and at your own risk. Yeah, there was a yeah. It was it was blue and faded and wasn't really rusted or anything, but uh, it was a. Uh, it was dented and damaged, though, from getting T-boned. It came to an end eventually. But, you know, we took it through the through the thing. I think uh, there was one day um, my friend Anita was <laughs> helping do some T-shirt stuff and things at the, uh, at the, the little uh, storage unit. And there was some paint there. And I think she was just like, well, let me paint the van. I thought she was just going to touch up, touch up some spots. I come out there and she's got this giant mural that she's painted on the side. In orange, fluorescent orange paint. Fluorescent orange. So, uh, yeah. So had that for quite some time. Had that for quite some time there on the side of it until uh, I think it wound up in the junkyard that was up the street from the Janice house. Somebody said they saw it going crushed and going on to a flatbed so it, it should have been crushed five years sooner than it was crushed <laughs> yeah there's a good chance you know it got recycled into coke cans and you probably held the white heart van while you're sipping on a tasty beverage i probably did <laughs> <laughs> oh there's that I, I only took you up on riding in that thing three or four times when uh, Dave would call me and ask me to go out and road manage Whiteheart. I would ride to the bus with you and Anthony, 
but dude, I never felt safe in that thing. It always felt like it was on a swivel. Oh, you know, usually I was just on old hickory back and forth, but occasionally you had to get it on the interstate and really live. (laughs) (laughs) Really, really live. I mean, it's just like, yeah, sorry, folks. Demolition Derby's coming through. Kind of like jumping out of an airplane without a parachute. We're living now. (laughs) Pretty much. Pretty much. I mean, you did a lot of praying while you were driving in that van. So you got close to God in the White Hart van, that's for sure. And for those that are worried about people being on the road, usually we drove the thing when there was everybody was home sleeping when we were going to bus call. <laughs> yeah, bus call usually was until midnight. Right. That was back when Nashville was very quiet in, in the evenings. So not so much anymore. Yes. Bus calls only on that van. We wouldn't even take that on to the uh, nightly store trips uh, <laughs> from the Janice house. John was famous for usually about 1130 when, you know, people are starting to think about going to bed. Hey, let's go to the store. <laughs> now, do you know why? Diet Coke. Well, yeah, but if we went to the store and got snacks, then you had to stay up to eat them, and we would hang for a few more hours. You had a lot. John was just keeping everybody's blood sugars up. There was, there was the one night to where it was just like, no, John, I'm going to bed. I'm going to bed. John, John's like, no, 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 dude, you got to hang. You got to hang. And I was just like, John, give me one good reason why I should stay awake and hang with you. And he just looks up at me with these puppy dog eyes and goes, I'm scared. (laughs) Do you remember the time I came in? It was like 4, 4.30 in the morning. I had been to Minnesota with the Newsboys. I had played a couple shows with them on New Year's Eve and came back and got home at like 4.30 in the morning. Oh, my gosh. That was right around Christmas time and everything. And there was still a lot of people that were visiting. Lots of visitors at the house. We had a house full of company. Yes. What do you remember? Tell that story if you remember it. Yeah, John. So it's like four and more. A bunch of us are sleeping in the living room, couches, floor, whatever. And John comes in off the road. It's like 4.30 in the morning, lays down. I think it was between me and Chucky. Yeah. And we wake up and we're like, what? what? And he goes, hey, guys, did you miss me? Flips the lights on and woke the whole house up so we could all go to the store. <laughs> Well, dude, we didn't go door to door waking everybody up, but people started hearing the excitement coming from the living room, and they just gradually joined the party. And those who didn't want to wake up had no choice. Well, eventually. (laughs) Had no choice. But going to the store was always fun. There were the special events, because also on that birthday when we had a special trip to the store, and... uh, so I could pick out my birthday card. <laughs> well, I had been on the road and I missed your birthday and I thought it would be cool to take you to the store and let you pick out your own birthday card. Well, you know, I mean, I'm, you know, I'm from the South. So I thought this was just some weird Yankee tradition that they did. So I'm like, all right, I'll play along. So we go on up to there. Uh, I think it was to the Kroger. Always Kroger. Always Kroger or Mapco, but Kroger for birthday cards. And we go on in there, and John, and I'm just, he goes, well, pick it out. And I'm like, all right. So I'm picking out a birthday card. And he goes, all right, is that the one you want? I said, yeah. And he goes, uh, he goes, all right, did you read it? Yeah. All right, well, happy birthday. Put the card back. (laughs) (laughs) And I was just like, oh. This is a Yankee thing. Cheap Yankee. Cheap Yankees can't even spend $1.05 on a birthday card. Well, the funny thing about it is I didn't think to do it until it was like it was very spontaneous. Right. It was not planned. I thought I was going to buy you a card when we left. (laughs) (laughs) It was spontaneous. But you know what? You know, it's just like. Actually, I think that should really become a thing. Take your friends to pick out their birthday card, and that way you recycle. Well, and that way you get the card you want. You get the card you want. You've done it. Because what's going to happen? You're going to go put it up, and, and it's going to be there. And then in 15 years from now, you're going to be hanging on that card and then having this battle within yourself of whether you need to just chunk it or not. Okay, so I, I have to tell this about you. You're somewhat... I won't determine the degree, but you're somewhat of a conspiracy theory guy. Do you remember the time I was staying with you about 10 years ago? (laughs) And 
you said, hey, I need to get my mail. Will you go by and stop stop down by the mailbox of your apartment complex? And so I drove past like eight empty parking places right next to the mailbox and parked way down the way from the mail. And he's like, why didn't you park back there? And I said, because that's what they want us to do. It's true, man. I mean, you know, Rusty Shackelford was right. We're not called conspiracy theorists, John. We're critical thinkers. Critical thinkers. There you go. I like that. We're critical thinkers, and we're free to do that for now. Right, right. <laughs> but the problem is with the conspiracy theorist thing, John, is they've all come true. We need some new ones. I know, right? So take that however you want to. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So you and I both like the one thing about me when I was on the road, I did merch for first call. I did merch for Charlie Peacock. I would road manage. I would stage manage. I went out and did a rust half tour where I tuned his guitars and set up his band gear. I did anything I could do. And you were like that. You would go out and road manage or stage manage. You ultimately ended up running the office for Whiteheart. But you and I both have lived the dream of road managing, some would say, triumphantly leading Whiteheart. It is so glamorous, John. <laughs> it, it is glamorous. And then, you know, it's just, I mean, the realization you have one day, maybe during, maybe afterwards, it is just like, I'm being paid to babysit full-grown adults. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so give me a couple examples of road managing or working with the guys. Well, I remember one time we were in Montana. It was snowing, and, you know, basically it was the Tales of Wonder Tour. Mm -hmm. um, I was stage managing at this point, um, and, you know, we had the little intro track for Raging of the Moon that was there, and then the band would kick in going into the chorus. Yep. Well, that whole thing starts, and it would come out of this this – 15 minute set change thing that we would do well we were you know finding things to do we're in montana we're fired from home so we're finding different things to play games on the bus well billy had come up with this game and i forget what it was but it involved gluing cards playing cards to a piece of poster board so he was really into that well show's going and every getting ready to go we've done the set change and it's going everybody's there standing on stage ready to go on you know, uh, the lights are going down. There's no Billy. So I run out literally through the snow. The bus was not parked by the stage door. It was kind of down the street a little bit through about two feet of snow. It was fresh. <laughs> Go on the bus. Billy's sitting there working on his game. And I'm like, Billy, track started. You need to get on stage. And he's like, no, it's not. And I was like, Billy, it is. And he's like, oh, man, it really is. And he runs out the door, gets on there, and I think he was there by the second chorus, and he just walked on cool as a cucumber, just smiling at everybody, just like that. So that was a, that was a thing of just making sure people got to be where they got to be sometimes. Yeah. Well, the thing is, it was a 10-minute pre-roll that started with a countdown from La Sauce and from Viva Music. Mm-hmm. The White Heart Tales of Wonder Tour will start in... 10 minutes great piece of music by the way oh incredible best pre-roll ever it's not available anywhere it's not available but gersh found a copy of it in his attic about a year ago really he, ne he needs to post that out there and share it with the world well you know you can do it for like 10 minutes you can like when you got to get up and do your morning routine to get ready you can start that with lasso olsen <laughs> and it'll count you down all the way to where you gotta head out the door oh my gosh do you remember the white heart tales of wonder show at nyack college in nyack new york uh tell me a story i probably will okay so who was our other brother who liked to create beats and play guitar and daydream and kind of push off the show to the very last second really yeah john knox uh, so one night we were at Nyack College and I looked at Richie and said, start the pre-roll. Pre-roll's playing and I went up and checked. No John Knox on the side of the stage. So, oh, yeah. So I walked out to the bus. 
open the door. John's sitting at the table. I'm like, dude, the pre-roll started. Oh, no, it didn't. I'm like, no, no, it really did start. Show is starting. You've got less than five minutes. Okay. So I go in and I'm standing by Richie. And the track's playing. You got a 10-minute pre-roll. Then you have the first verse before it comes in on the first chorus of Raging of the Moon. So Richie looks at me and says, we can't stop the tape. We're like, we can't stop the pre-roll. And I'm like, I know, let it go. I mean, worst comes to worst, they'll start, they'll play the first song without the drummer. So all of a sudden, somebody taps me on the shoulder and I look over and it's John Knox. Hey man, what's going on? I'm like, dude, what are you doing? And he's like, oh, I just came in. He said, this, you said the pre-roll was going. And I said, no, the pre-roll is almost ending. And at that point, the beginning of the song started and it had that really cool intro. And literally, the track of Whiteheart playing the first verse starts playing, and John realizes, oh my gosh, the song is playing. Ah. He goes busting down the aisle. He bangs into a girl. Right, right. And dude, he goes running down the center aisle, and someone says, that's not them playing, because there goes the drummer. <laughs> and it was like, oh my gosh. So John literally dives up on the center stage from the center aisle runs to the drums, plugs his headphones in, and gets in there just in time for the downbeat of the chorus. He foiled the crime. Oh, he foiled the crime, all right. <laughs> he, he put out his own fire. He literally walked in the room and didn't even listen to see <laughs> that the pre-roll was actually almost over. He just came up, hey, dude, what's going on? <laughs> but he made it to the drums. I mean, it was, it was a miracle he made it. It was a spectacular once-in-a-lifetime opening. <laughs> well, every time, dude, every time something like that would happen, like, he would say, go get my headphones, it's on, they're on the bus. And I'd say, no, you go get your headphones, you left them on the bus. It's like every time that happened inside, you're just thinking, oh my gosh, you're really going to miss the intro to the show, aren't you? But as the road manager, all you could do is just give them the information that they needed, and it was up to them whether they were going to listen or not. Well, it was a great experience, road managing. You know, I wouldn't have traded it for the world, and those were a great bunch of guys. Absolutely. They're still a great bunch you of know. guys. I mean, today, actually, dude, today is Gersh's birthday, and we could call any one of those guys, Brian, John, Billy, Rick, Gersh, um, it doesn't matter if we needed something or if we just wanted to go to lunch. They're there in five minutes. Yeah, that, yeah, true with anybody. Yeah. Those were great times, man. Yeah, before we turn the final page on Whiteheart today, let's touch on South Africa. What do you remember about the trip to South Africa? I remember four things. I remember the cover of the USA Today said 31 massacred in Johannesburg the day we were flying to Johannesburg. And it was when apartheid had ended and Nelson Mandela had been let out of prison and stuff. So all that was going on. I remember the safari. I remember the fireworks during the flame passes on. And I remember, well, during the pyro section of the flame passes on, it was almost like a fire. And then I remember the banner, one of the Highlands banners from the castle got stolen off the scaffolding. Somebody climbed up and stole it after the show. What do you remember? Oh, speaking of that banner that was stolen in South Africa, do you remember Atlanta Fest? I remember Atlanta Fest. What are you talking about? Atlanta though? Fest, we had those banners up, and it was basically because the, the set design for the Highlands Tour was a collaboration between Miyagi, uh, Scott Moore, and myself. And right. basically we were using Scottish motifs, and it was that uh, that yellow flag with the red lion on it, and that was that... Uh, uh, we use that on there on the side for the motif. Well, for some people, some people out of the audience were upset. So a state trooper came back and said, Hey, there's some upset people. And I was like, well, this must be a pretty big deal. <laughs> so I go out in the audience and all these people are like, why does white heart have dragons up there? Oh, and I was like, excuse me. And I was like, Ma'am, this is the Highlands tour. Those are lions. From Scotland. From Scotland. This is all a motif and everything like that. Somebody goes, they're lions. And then somebody yells out, hey, everybody, they're lions. It's the lion of Judah. It's okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's the lion of Judah. And I'm like, yep, that's right. It's the lion of Judah. I'm like, whatever. And I'm like, <sighs> Man, don't go 
don't go looking for evil where there is none. <laughs> right. Oh, dude. I was playing for Margaret one time, and this woman came up to me. Margaret had bought me yeah. this necklace, and it was literally a skeleton key on a string, a really cool string, but it was a skeleton key. And this woman came up to me and said, what does your necklace mean? I'm like, nothing. Yes, it does. It's got to be. It's symbolic for something. You have to tell me, you know, tell me. I, everything means something. And I'm like, this doesn't really mean anything. I promise. Oh, no. It, it's it's symbolic. It's like it means something. What does it mean? And I said, uh, ma'am, it doesn't mean anything. It was a gift. Somebody, a friend of mine, gave it to me. And she said, I don't believe you. I believe you wear that, and there's a reason behind it. And I said, okay, well, if you really need a reason behind it, I wear it because Margaret Becker bought it for me and asked me to wear it. <gasps> That's all? I'm like, yeah. You mean it doesn't have any spiritual meaning? And I said, well, beyond Jesus is the key, no. <laughs> <laughs> well, there you go. And she hey. actually, oh, Jesus is the key. I love that. And she walked away happy because she thought she had solved some deep spiritual meaning riddle that had to do with my necklace. Sure. It was just it was just like, oh my gosh, please. And then you remember the grief that Whiteheart took? You remember the grief the guys took when Powerhouse came out? And people were writing letters saying, Why is the guy on the album cover wearing a number eight on the back of his shoe? The bowler? Sure. They thought eight was greater than seven. Are they saying that eight is better than seven, which is God's perfect number? And it was because the guy wore a size eight bowling shoe that was in the photo shoot. I I understand that was a stock photo that they had found somewhere. Right. Well, stock photo or not, you know, as Christians, we're supposed to think the best of each other. And man, there was a lot of suspicious fans out there that paid attention to all kinds of stuff that really didn't mean anything. Well, what I was always confused about with that album cover wasn't the size eight shoe, but how was this guy going to bowl when he's having to bowl the ball between his legs? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> he's the class clown. <laughs> that's 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 what that's what I that's what the one thing that miffed me about that one. Not that I mean, don't get me wrong. I think there's a lot of symbolism that's real, but sometimes you're going, don't go looking for stuff where there is nothing. Right. Hey, I just thought of somebody. I want to go back to the Janice house for a second, Rob, because we lost a friend a few years ago. Um, talk about Eric Dawson. He wasn't a touring musician that went out and, you know, caught buses and went and played shows, but he was a great guitar player. He was actually a medical student when he lived at the Janice house. Talk about Eric for a minute. Uh, Eric Dawson. Eric was the smartest guy in the Janice house. Dr. <laughs> Eric Dawson. Dr. Eric Dawson. Doc, he was an incredible guitar player, but he was also a doctor. Um, he went into cancer research. Tragically, he uh, he passed away from uh, brain cancer working on uh, that he was researching at the time at mm. Vanderbilt. Um, he survived his wife, by his wife, Renee, who would come over a lot and watch games and stuff, you know, because, you know, a lot of Alabama people in that house. And uh, <laughs> sorry, Chucky. <laughs> you know, War Eagles' little sister, you know that. The one Auburn fan in town. But Eric was great, smart. We used to play, we used to play head to head poker just for fun all the time at, at the kitchen table and everything. But that guy, he was smart. He was good. Just uh, loving day to day. Yeah, great guy. And he could play. Mm -hmm. He could play. The dude, I, I mean. Yeah, he was really good. Eddie Van Halen, Eric Johnson, all that stuff. So he yeah. was a great, incredible player. Yep. So I think that was what he really, really wanted to do, and he loved living there. Right. He was awesome. Yeah. Yeah, the world lost a good dude when we lost Eric. So I'm better for knowing him. Yeah. Yep, we all are. Okay, so I just didn't want to miss Eric talking about the Janus House. Um, so let's get back to this. What do you remember about South Africa? Because we got distracted with Atlanta Fest, and then we went down a rabbit trail. Let's get back to uh, South Africa. Man, that was a, another overseas whirlwind trip with Whiteheart. That was the only way I did things with Whiteheart. But 
uh, yeah, we, we landed and they had a press conference for us and it was great. It was, uh, it was very, very, uh, it was very eye opening experience. South Africa is first off is a beautiful, beautiful country and the people are just amazing. Um, I remember doing the show and we were in, in a soccer stadium in Soweto where they had the riots back in the sixties and the 1900s. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, we were out there setting up all night, and it was set up for their broadcast on their for their Good Friday special right. on the the network there. And uh, I just remember it being a lot of it was another very much not a lot of sleep during the show part. Uh, the show was incredible. I you know uh, the fans were just uh, I I didn't realize there were that many White Heart fans in South Africa, but. Uh, do you remember there was two shows? Yeah, one was one was one was what we did like a matinee, and then one was uh, done for uh, live for Friday night, right? Yeah, so it was two two separate crowds though. They brought a crowd in, then ran them off, and brought another mm-hmm. crowd in. Yeah, so those were those were uh, those were fantastic, and then uh, we wound up out in the uh, South Serengeti. Was it? I was trying to think of his woods or jungle, but yeah, it was, we were out in the Serengeti there. The Mabula Lodge. The Mabula Lodge, which I found interesting because they had separated all of the predatory animals like lions and tigers and anything that could kill you like that, but not yeah. poisonous, deadly, venomous snakes. <laughs> no, no, the snakes were invited to dinner. No, the 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 snakes were invited everywhere. Uh, I think it was like the first day we were there. Uh, it was. Those guys came running out of the dining room and uh, up to us and said, "Please do not come in here. We're trying to catch a Mozambique spitting cobra." Well, our biology student Rick goes running in there and has to get in there and help them, not realizing it could go blind. Yeah. So they caught that one. Also heard that while we were there, there was a uh, black mamba that fell in the swimming pool. That's that's wonderful. Yeah. And um, and then there's just all the little mistakes we were making that you know we survived, like going, oh wow, you can see all these stars out here on this dock at the hippo pond. <laughs> you really shouldn't go out to the hippo pond because those will kill a man. You know. <laughs> or getting out of the jeep to go get closer to the rhino. <laughs> Oh, yeah. And then there was the Sunday morning where I think it was me and Billy and Alan Ditch and Miyagi. And we decided to go for that pile of rocks outside the, you know, where we were staying at the resort. And we go over there and walk around and we come back. Hey, you shouldn't have gone over there. It's a, the, they have rock pythons that kill a man, you know, and it was all this just that. But. We got to go see the cats, and they kept them separate in a cage, just not the snakes. They were everywhere. In fact, I think people started paying jokes on people by taking gaff tape and rolling it up to look like the end of the snake and then hiding it, just sticking out from under the curtain. So when you'd walk in, yeah, um, you'd think there was a snake in there. And also there was a gap from about an inch under the front door to where anything could climb in there. So I really don't know what was going on there at the old Mabula Gang Lodge. <laughs> well, I can tell you, Miyagi was on the show a couple of weeks ago, and Miyagi's the one that did the duct tape and, and like, tried to scare you. <laughs> oh, yeah, he did. Oh, dude, I was, like, I was, I was freaked out after. I was like, no. No, because we grew up with rattlesnakes in Alabama. When you went outside at night, you always had to look down. Yeah. You know, they would climb up there. And next thing you know, you're not paying attention and bam. Yeah. So, and it's, you know, high, more highly, much more highly venomous in Africa with some of the species they have. So. All right. So let's transition into this. When you and I lived together back in 1991, 92, you I gave you lots of grief for watching MTV like 22 hours out of the day. You loved music videos. We used to sit and watch them by the hour. I would leave, come back. You'd still be watching them. And then all of a sudden, Mr. TV himself, Rob Luttrell, ended up getting into video production, and you became a fantastic video director. How did that transition come about for you? Uh, said yes. Uh <laughs> I needed I needed the money and said yes. There you go. 
Well, in college, I had done a little bit of video work, and uh, we were, uh, I think it was a weekend with Whiteheart. We went to Jesus Northwest, and we brought a guy out named Tony Griffey to do monitors for us, and we got talking and everything, and chatted up stuff, backgrounds and anything, everything, and so he called me on a, he called me to, looking for a camera guy for uh, an Amway show. Which is basically you sit with the camera and you follow the person back and forth for about six hours at a time. Right. You know, uh, it's long, grueling. It's, you know, the way to learn video, I reckon. And uh, asked me if I wanted to go out and do this show over Thanksgiving and started doing that and then got into that and started doing learning video walls and and things of that nature. And um, basically we were doing a show it was women of faith and you know he said hey you want to direct and i was like sure why not and uh first thing you know that was a river what was it riverfront coliseum in cincinnati yeah i'm not sure what it's called now yeah and um did that did that show and uh just kind of kept doing it from there i mean most of the stuff i was doing was really kind of more talking heads and stuff, but with having a background in music and stuff, I always liked doing that stuff and had a real knack for that, of, you know, just understanding where music, you know, the structure of music and songs and that, and being able to bring that in and just kind of just ex started experimenting with it and then went from there, you know? Right. And, um, you know, and then slowly got into editing and then you and I started collaborating because you were getting a lot of stuff. Well, I have to stop you and tell you that you are the one that's responsible for putting me on a path that ran parallel with my music career. Sometimes I'd be doing music, sometimes I'd be doing video. But you called me one day and said, hey, I got a tour for you. You want to go out with me this next year and do Women of Faith and learn how to run video camera? And I'm like, dude, I've never touched a camera before in my life. And you were like, yeah, but I can teach you. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I do. Yeah. That was, yeah, John. And I think with your, you know, just your background and everything, you had to master it. You had to, you had to be able to play, you know, play a camera like you play a bass. Yeah. You want, you wanted that. Now, do you remember where I think we were in Topeka and it was production rehearsals and you were getting there and not really getting the hang of it. And it was like, we didn't have to be in the next day till like 11 o'clock and it was probably like one thirty in the morning. And I was, yeah, I was just like, you were like, Hey man. And I'm like, Oh dude, why do you want to go to the store at one thirty in the morning is what I'm thinking. And you wanted to like go, Hey, can we, we went down there right now. Could we go in there and work? So I basically, we went back to the arena. Yeah. It was the Friday night of the women of faith event. And that first two hours a Friday night, dude, I sucked on camera and I couldn't sleep. And I was thinking, how am I going to do Saturday? Because the weird thing is it wasn't just your typical 24 feet wide stage pan left and right and follow them. It was 24 feet wide and it was 24 feet deep and they were in the round and it was crazy because they would, you couldn't see their feet. So they would be, they would walk towards you and be out of focus before you knew they were even moving. Yeah, you're having to push and pull focus, which a lot of people don't do. And if you remember, Sheila was acting like she was in the roller derby, just going nuts, going left to right, back and forth, and it was crazy. I was so bad. Mm -hmm. We went back to the arena that night and worked for what, two or three hours? It seemed like it was two or three hours. I wouldn't say it was, John, it wasn't two or three hours. I think you were in there. You were you You figured it out within a half hour. What? You think, John, it was John. It was a lot quicker than you think. I think it was just once you were able to sit there and it was just me and you with everything, you're able to just click in. You weren't there all of a sudden, you know, all I know is it felt like two or three hours and I felt the pressure of, Oh my God, I've never sucked at anything this bad in my life. <laughs> oh, you figured it out. And everything I've done in video for the last 20 years, dude, I owe you and Mike Wilson and Evan French for uh, teaching me all this stuff that I know. Ah, uh, man. Well, I tell you what, speaking of Mike Wilson, I've learned a lot from that guy. Yeah. He knows He knows his stuff. Dude, we won an Addy together. That's right, dude. We won a gold <laughs> Addy Award for a TV commercial. All right, so Julie, my <laughs> wife, was working at a mortgage company. 
and she called me one day and said, hey, the owners want to do a commercial, and the uh -huh. company that sent in a demo, these videos, these commercials are so bad. Can you think of an idea for a mortgage commercial, for a mortgage company? And I said, well, that's easy. Like, have a little girl, you know, pulling a wagon with a dream house, little Barbie doll kind of playhouse on the back of the wagon. Have her pull it through town, have her pull it through a field with flowers, and then along a white picket fence, and then the next thing you know, at the end of the commercial, she's got this dollhouse out in the middle of a vacant lot, which is her dream lot. Someday she wants to build a house there. And she said, well, you should put that in writing uh -huh. and submit it. So I go in and meet with these four owners and pitch the idea, and they're like, oh, we love it. Well, can you come up with a golf idea? And I saw so on the spot, I came up with this idea for a golf commercial. So I end up landing this account to do two com TV commercials for a mortgage company. And then I call you and say, hey, dude, how do we do this? Yeah. <laughs> and so you came to Michigan. We shot a couple commercials. Your engineering skills helped me get them broadcast ready and color corrected and stuff. And uh, I submitted one of them to the Eddie Awards and it won a gold Eddie Award. They would have both won if I had submitted them both, but... I didn't know you could submit more than one until it was too late. Oh, yeah. Concord, Michigan. Concord, Michigan. <laughs> <laughs> it was great, man. That was a that was a fun time doing that. That was that was fun. Just being just uh, working with you, being creative on that type of stuff. I was actually shocked that it actually I didn't even know you'd entered it. Well, there's a story behind that. As always, do you want to hear the story? Sure. There was this guy who acted like we were friends that lived up here, and I had known of him. He had been a youth pastor at a church up here, and we were somewhat friends, but as time played out, it was obvious we weren't really cut from the same cloth, and he was he was like a talker. He's the one that always tells you what he's going to do, and you know me, dude. I don't talk. I just try to do. So when the commercial, we got the commercial done, one day he came over to the house, and he said, how did your commercial turn out? And I said, oh, it turned out pretty good. And he said, well, let me see it. And so I showed it to him. And he said, well, that's pretty good, but it won't win any Addy Awards or anything. And I was like, what's an Addy Award? And he said, well, they have advertisement awards, and they're called Addy Awards. But don't worry about it, because that's not good enough to win. And I thought, well, you know what? You're just another clown from the clown car that's never done anything in your life except talk about what you're going to do, but never done any of it telling me that our commercial isn't good enough to win an award I didn't even know existed. I thought, well, dang, I'm just going to submit it and find out how to do it just for the heck of it. <laughs> <laughs> so I did some research. I found out where you submit the stuff. So I called them, got the forms. I only submitted one of the two because I didn't know you could submit two in the same category the same year. It's the first, thing I'd ever, first time I'd ever heard of any of this stuff. So I submitted them. And about two weeks before the event, I started getting phone calls from one of the women in charge. She's like, so you're coming to the award ceremony, correct? And I said, well, I wasn't really planning on it. And she said, no, you really need to make plans to come to the award ceremony. And I said, well, I don't know. I'm not really big on that kind of stuff. She's like, no, you really need to come. I can't tell you if you won or lost, but you really need to come. You'll be glad you came to the award ceremony if you come. So Julie and I ended up going just because she kept calling and you and I won a gold Addy award. <laughs> and if I was ever going to be into awards, dude, I'd be proud that I won it with you. You know, you just never know. You just run it up the flagpole and see if somebody salutes and occasionally they do. Yep. We took an idea, simple little idea, brought it to life and it lived. Yes, we did. It was good. It was a nice feather in the cap. All right. So now I'm going to get you out of here on this. Now, for the last several years, you've worked for Alan Jackson. Now, what's funny about the Alan Jackson thing, dude, is when you and I lived together and we'd sit and watch MTV and flip back and forth between CMT and MTV, Alan Jackson's videos were all over the TV. We went way down yonder on the Chattahoochee a lot when we lived at the Janus house. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that was the thing. And I think that was Robert Arthur that, um, that uh, brought that that in into the Janus house with the country and actually had a friend who was with is with Alan uh Monty. Oh yeah. Monty yeah. Allen and everything. So when I first came on to Allen I knew him and also that was there was Slim Bevins who was the stage manager for Whiteheart when I was road manager. Slim was out with Alan? Yeah. 
Oh, I had no idea. He was out there for a while. And, uh, and then, um, also Tom Wilson was one of the owners of elite who was supplying the gear for video. Who I know very, very well. I love Tom Wilson. Who you know well from the Margaret Becker days. Yes. So it was kind of like, you know, going in there. And it's been it's been a uh, uh, it's been a great. I've been with Alan for about seven years or so now. Dude, you killed the live show. You, if you go see Alan Jackson live, you will see Robbie's work on the video screens. Oh, yeah. Some nights it's good. <laughs> no, every night it's good. Some nights it's fantastic. So, but yeah, it's so I've done that and then, you know, kind of wide up, you know, one offs and everything. And that was up until COVID. Things are starting to, you know, go back slowly now from, you know, we'll just kind of have to see of uh, what's going to going to happen. So, but uh, yeah, it's been enjoyable uh, with with that with Alan. Um, also been doing some stuff. I've done a couple things, tours with uh, King and Country and those lads are great. The legends. For King and Country, for those of you that don't know, are Rebecca St. James's two little brothers who used to run around bossing people around on the Rebecca St. James tours. <laughs> mm-hmm. And they haven't forgotten their roots. No. You know. Great kids. Great guys. Yeah. It's it's refreshing. You know, they're, uh, you know, they would jump in and help out when things were behind. You know, Joel and Luke, they haven't forgotten where they came from. So, it's uh that that was great but uh you know um you know going out with alan in a couple weeks uh you know he's doing he's doing some stuff and then um just some things here and there so um you know we'll just we'll just seeing what's going to happen in the next chapters right on okay i'm gonna flip the script on you rob i'm gonna get you out of here on this instead of ending with something going on today I want to go back to the first day I moved into the Janice house. Do you remember that day? Do you remember that story I'm talking about? Well, I knew John was, I knew John was moving in and I was coming home and I rounded the corner and I knew this was going to be a different roommate because he basically taken every stick of furniture in the house and put it in the front yard. And that was what awaited me when I pulled into the driveway <laughs> And I come in, John sitting on the stairs because there was nowhere to sit now, uh, going through the phone book. And I said, well, what's going on? And he goes, we're getting the carpet clean. We're cleaning this whole house. Uh, I'm going to work on, on this. Do you want the kitchen? Do you want the bathroom? And I was just like, well, apparently there's no getting out of this. You know, if you want to sit down and watch TV or do anything, you've got to get through this. So uh, that was my first experience with John. So, and it worked out pretty well. We stayed in order after that. No more McDonald's fries sitting in the in the cupboard. So, <laughs> no more Dr Pepper tipped over on the living room carpet. <laughs> you know, it added color from for the, whoever the Dr Pepper drinkers were. So, Anthony, um, that was a that was a it was a bonding experience cleaning the house. Yep, and it began a legendary friendship mm -hmm. that has lasted over 30 years and counting. Yes, it's been that long. I know, it's crazy. All right, dude, listen, I know you got a, you've got an appointment you got to get to. I appreciate you taking time to do this, man. I love you. I love you too, man. Hey, Rockstar provides digital marketing software and services for your church to generate more interest, create more exposure, and reach more people. Let Hey Rockstar amplify the awesomeness of your ministry. And, as always, Hey Rockstar is a proud sponsor of the Stage Right with John Thorne podcast. Thank you for listening today. Thank you, Hey Rockstar. Thank you, Robbie Luttrell. Next Friday, Jeff Nolte, the only sound guy I know that ran sound for Petro, Whiteheart, and the Newsboys. Have a great weekend.